Welcome to Vishing's Daily News. We'll be covering the value of non-toxic order flow to the Uniswap protocol, one of the coolest experiments in crypto, and on-chain RWA. Let's get to it. Xenophone Labs published a research report titled The Value of Non-Toxic Order Flow to the Uniswap Protocol in Mira. The main contents of the report are as follows. Non-toxic order flow creates an enormous value for LPs of the Uniswap protocol. Both from non-toxic order fees and from the fees paid by sandwich orders surrounding many of these non-toxic orders. Still, we recommend that the protocol should not re-incentivize non-toxic order flow to colonize until. Suppose Alice is selling apples at $1 an apple and she does not have access to external price information. Now suppose that a gnarly storm blows through the farms of all of Alice's neighbors and they are no longer able to sell their apples. A savvy apple trader, Bob, gets access to this information before Alice and he realizes that the true price of these apples is now $2 an apple. Bob then immediately buys as many of Alice's $1 apples as he can and he sells them somewhere else for a profit. In this example, Bob makes a low to no risk profit due to the fact that Alice has worse access to information. If Alice knew that she could raise the price of her apples with low to no risk of selling fewer, then she would be able to make the profit that Bob made. Bob's app order embodies the concept of toxic order flow. To measure order flow toxicity, we utilize the markup metric, which tells us the short-term profitability of the trade from the LP's perspective. This is a common metric in HFT market making, and it has also been utilized in multiple analysis of Uniswap LP profitability. In our paper, we demonstrate that the expected LP markout from non-toxic orders is at least as large as the fees paid to the LPs. And we also find that a lot of the volumes come from a phenomenon called sandwich attacks. Sandwich attacks consist of front and back running, which pumps up the price before another trade and arbitrage it back down to its pre-pump price for profit. In plain English, LPs make revenue from sandwich attacks while not taking on additional price risk. Only after conducting this full analysis were we able to reach our main recommendation. The Uniswap Foundation should wait until the protocol generates revenue before incentivizing order flow. Specifically, the 35% of grants budget that was earmarked for the incentive program should be allocated to be returned to the protocol treasury. With better information comes better decision making. There is a wealth of information to be gained from further research on Uniswap's order flow. In this report, we marry data and theory to determine the value that non-toxic order flow can create for the protocol which can be utilized by the community once a protocol generates revenue. We hope that the Uniswap community can harness these results to thoughtfully and sustainably grow the protocol in the future. Dankraid Feist published a blog titled RAI, one of the coolest experiments in crypto, the main content of which is as follows. In the past, the goal of creating stable coins was seen as creating an asset that is always worth one USD or some other currency. But as Vitalik remarked in his thoughts experiments on automated stablecoins, if you can create a coin that is always worth one USD, why can't you use the same mechanism to create one that is worth one USD plus 20% interest per year? After all, the only way the blockchain knows about prices is through oracles, and it's an easy change to the oracle to make a return the value of the coin priced in this new unit instead of USD. In order to balance supply and demand, a fully decentralized stablecoin needs to be able to give incentives to those going long and going short in some form. This is true whether it tracks USD, USD plus 20% interest, or USD minus 5% interest. One way of doing this is to add a mechanism rate that charges interest on debt. 
the supplies of the stablecoin and credits it to the holders, the users of the stablecoin. The interest rate can however be negative when there is more demand for holding more than there is for stablecoin debt. Since its inception, RAI has mostly had negative interest rates. For now, it seems like decentralized stablecoins require negative interest rates most of the time. When interest rates are negative, instead of having your balance change from 1 to 0.99 to 0.98, RAI keeps the balance the same and changes the actual price target of the stablecoin instead. This means that RAI looks like a floating currency, but with the property that is much more volatile than cryptos like Ether and Bitcoin. Another cool component of RAI is that the redemption rate is actually automatically computed by the protocol. The protocol detects the supply and demand imbalance by tracking the deviation of the market price from redemption price. If the market price is higher than the redemption price, it means that there is more demand for RAI than there is for CDPs. And so a negative redemption rate has to be applied. Conversely, if the market price is lower than the redemption price, the redemption rate needs to be positive. KOL Wassy Lawyer shared his views on on-chain RWA on Twitter. The following are his main points. The idea of on-chain RWA is in principle okay, but execution requires an incredible Web3 plus legal plus in real life ops team, which no project has right now. Without this, it's just a sexy narrative to pump a garbage token, raise funds, or make people pay for your house. A lot of these ideas even come from the wrong starting point. People assume RWA plus on-chain equals number go up. But why would number go up? A RWA like a painting, luxury watch, or real estate already has a market value in the real world. There needs to be a reason for tokenizing. I see this a lot with shitty on-chain RWA projects. The use cases will look at real estate in this revolve around pontifying an in-real-life asset with NFTs and tokens with little to no care for the actual real-life asset for the actual in-real-life asset itself. The project team often cannot even manage the IRL asset. Now, let's say you are doing it for the right reason. The reason is normally liquidity, but this carries security risks. Security risk is easier to manage when you are dealing with fully on-chain assets. How do you think the regulator is going to respond if you start tokenizing, say, real estate, which needs to be registered to an owner? They will think this is an unregulated REIT. One example I have looked at is Chain Estate DAO because I think a bunch of ads promoted it to me. It is a project that allegedly allows you to invest in real estate but you have zero right of recourse to the real estate itself. So on top of securities risks, you have incredible counterparty risk. You can have a Ethereum style OTP which has access to asset but doesn't generate yield for holding the NFT or a Chain Estate style trust me bro REIT that generates yield but has no recourse to the asset. Even if you had an automatic mechanism that worked, you would need a management company for the asset that is divorced from the asset holding vehicle because who is going to manage the asset if the founders are removed? So for all of this to work, you would need at least one, an independent custodian that holds the RWA, two, legal infra which binds the custodian to the token holders, three, a securities law compliant structure, four, process for replacing the management company. To continue hearing more, please subscribe to bishingventures.substack.com for daily newsletter and follow Twitter account Bishing Ventures to hear the rest.